Has your brand been struggling to reach the correct audience when advertising? We've all done it. Maximize privacy filters on our phones and apps because who wants to be talking about something for it to pop up mysteriously later? It's weird and everyone hates it. Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising? With 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them. You know how much we love Zencaster, and their new creator network is no different. Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream, or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's creator network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster's creator network is a perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favorite creators, like us. So stop wasting advertising dollars on ad campaigns that aren't targeting your niche audience. Let Zencaster's Creator Network match you with podcasters who can ensure that your target audience is being reached. We love Zencaster so much, and being able to see ad opportunities come across our dashboard with a percentage match to see how much our audiences line up is game-changing. It helps creators really get behind brands that mean something to them. And with a podcast show for just about anything you can think of, your brand is no exception. Are you interested in sponsoring this show or podcast ads for your business? Go to zen.ai slash gruesome and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. Welcome to Gruesome, your horrific true crime podcast. I am Meg, and my morning glory, Connie, is going to tell us about Derek Todd Lee today. Welcome to Murder in the Morning with Connie and Meg, longtime listener, first-time caller. If you are a longtime listener, you know that the first serial killer that was covered on this podcast was Sean Vincent Gillis. Yeah, the other Baton Rouge killer. And during that episode, we talked about how Sean Vincent Gillis was, when he was active, and one of the reasons he was able to evade capture as long as he was, or even speculation, was because there was like a whole other serial killer active during that same time. Actually, during like the late 90s, early or early 90s, early 2000s, like that time span and like the Baton Rouge area, there were three serial killers going. <laughs> Just yeah, not talking about how crazy the South is, but Louisiana especially is a... Uh... Mm-hmm. They hold a special spot in my heart for being just like absolutely nuts. It is absolutely nuts. Um, I promised you guys at some point that I would cover the Baton Rouge killer. And today is that day. Um, your weekly trigger warnings are murder, rape, uh, brief conversation about animal cruelty. And I'm going to mention a couple times about suicide. So let's get to it. In keeping up with the three named serial killers in Louisiana trend, Derek Todd Lee was born on November 5th, 1968 in St. Francisville, Louisiana. His mom, Florence Lee, was only 17 when she had him. His dad, Samuel Ruth, wasn't wasn't around long after Florence gave birth to Lee's sister. Samuel had been married before he met Florence, and then he left Florence for his first wife, who he already had five kids with. He returned her. Yeah, he returned, had two more kids. They wouldn't last forever, though. And when they eventually divorced, he went on to marry another woman who had two more kids with him. So this guy's busy. Five, six, seven, eight. No, eight kids. How many? So five, seven, 
9, 11. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to complain about three anymore. And even though his dad wasn't in his life, it was probably for the best because their dad had some pretty serious mental health issues. And he even went on to be arrested for attempted manslaughter in 1991. Like manslaughter isn't on accident, right? How do you attempt Mm -hmm. on accident? I don't know. Okay. That's just what he was charged with. Florence would eventually find love as well, and everything seemed to change for the family when she met Coleman Barrow. The Lees were happy to have a father figure who worked hard, spent time with them, provided for them. Coleman Barrow was strict, and physical punishment seemed to be the norm for him. But during that time period, physical punishment seemed to be the norm for most parents. And while this was pretty normal, the physical punishments handed out from Barrow were often severe and frequent. His mom tried to keep the peace, but she stayed out of it. She would never intervene. Now, I'm not sure if this is something that's specific to Indiana, but when I lived down there, I heard I had lots of friends who talked about this type of situation. So a lot of times you'll have these like huge areas of land or like a road, you know, like out in the middle of nowhere. And there'll be a bunch of different family members who live on that road. I personally love the idea of a big commune type where like everyone's family like lives together. So, like, they'll name these areas based off of the last name of the family. Actually, St. Karen, when her husband got out of the Marines, they also lived. They lived in an area like this. There was their house, who, which was like an old family house. And then their neighbor was my brother-in-law's grandparents. And then on the other side of that was his aunt and uncle. So it's, yeah. And this is how, this is the type of area where the Lees lived. Um They called it Lee's Quarters. That's how it was known locally. And the kids were able to just be kids. The cousins all played all day. There were tons of them lived in the area. They spent all of the day outside. They were not allowed to play inside. Lee liked to bird hunt, explore, typical little kid stuff. In school, he struggled. His IQ levels were checked frequently and oftentimes falling below the standard. He was enrolled in special education classes and was frequently bullied for his mental capacity as well as sucking his thumb at school. Kids are jerks. Lee started showing troubling signs early on in childhood. Before he was even a teenager, he began peeping in windows. And there are reports that he physically abused his dog and its puppies. Derek Toddley learned early on that he had a knack for talking his way out of getting into trouble. And as we know, when you think you can talk your way out of something, you never take responsibility for your actions. And that's unfortunately what we're going to see here repeatedly. On November 8th, 1981, just three days after Lee turned 13, he was arrested for the first time for burglarizing the Sweet Spot, which was a local candy store. He pled guilty to simple burglary and was sentenced to probation. Growing up, families said that while Lee did have a temper, most of the time when he was faced with confrontation, he would walk away. Growing up, families said that while Lee did have a temper, most of the time when he was faced with confrontation, he would just walk away. But that trend came to a screeching halt when Lee was 16, even after a fight with another teenager where Lee tried to cut the kid with a knife. He was arrested and charged with attempted second degree murder. He still didn't serve any jail time, no juvenile, nothing. There wasn't even a disposition in this case. The window peeping had continued this entire time. Lee even attacked a woman in front of his mom because she accused him of looking in her windows. And she was was, right. Yeah. And this was a serious problem that he had. 
he had even been window peeping on some of his family members. And when they were finally fed up and went to the police, still no, like no consequences. Lee didn't have a lot of friends and he didn't hang out with a lot of girls in school, which probably because he gave them the creeps. He had one girl that he spent a lot of time with outside of his female cousins. Her name was Jackie Sims. He liked that she was quiet and smart and she didn't make fun of him like other kids did. Their friendship eventually turned romantic and they married after Jackie graduated high school in 1988. Lee dropped out of high school his 11th grade year the year prior. Exactly nine months after their big wedding, the couple welcomed their first child, Derek Todd Lee Jr. into the world. And when Lee wasn't working odd jobs, you could find him at the local bar bragging about all the women he had been with, all of his girlfriends, while his wife sat at home. And at first it bothered Jackie, but eventually she just ignored it and didn't pay attention to anything because it was easier than having to deal with him. They had a pretty tumultuous relationship. On one occasion when an argument turned physical, Lee threatened her dad with a gun. Police showed up and he was charged with disturbing the peace, but again, no jail time. Around this time, Lee also began to harass his mom regarding the physical abuse that his stepfather had bestowed on him. The harassment got so bad that she also had to call the police on him. And he was charged with misdemeanor trespassing, sentenced to therapy, but he never went. Lee was back and forth between St. Francisville and Zachary, Louisiana. Bar fights, burglary, and peeping in windows just kind of became his norm. Well, in addition to being a husband and a dad. August of 1992 came and Louisiana was preparing for Hurricane Andrew. Connie Lynn Warner lived in Zachary, Louisiana. Instead of being scared about the storm, Connie was worried about the man that she had filed a police report on for lurking outside of her house. Connie had only brought, bought her home four years prior. She was excited to have a home for her and her daughter, Tracy. Tracy was 17, very active in school activities, and actually heading out to Tracy's school activities was the only time Connie made the exception to go out at night due to her poor night vision. Tracy and her boyfriend had plans the weekend of August 21st so that Tracy could check out LSU. Her boyfriend, Andre Burgos, had seen a random man lurking around the neighborhood and he knew that he didn't live there. On Friday, August 21st, he finally confronted the guy when he saw him outside of the Warner's home. The man murmured some curse words at Burgos and then went about his way. That man's face would forever be etched inside of his mind. Because when the couple returned home on that Sunday, Connie was nowhere to be found. At first, Tracy didn't think anything of it. She thought maybe her mom had just went to visit one of her friends in the neighborhood because the TV had been left on. When 1030 came around and her mom was still nowhere to be found, she started calling her grandparents, neighbors, anyone she could think of. By 1130, she was able to finally get a hold of her grandparents. When her grandfather came to the house, she showed him an area in the laundry room where it looked like the washer had been moved. There was also what appeared to be spots of blood on the floor. When he looked inside of Connie's car, he also saw a vomit on the back seat, so immediately he called the police. The police found more evidence of a struggle inside, and they knew one thing that Connie did not go with her attacker easily. She fought like hell. On September 2, 1992, a truck driver would discover Connie's body near the Capitol building. Her cause of death was determined to be a skull fracture. Any other evidence was unfortunately washed away from Hurricane Andrew that made landfall and to the Zachary area on August 26. Her daughter and her boyfriend were actually questioned pretty extensively during the investigation because, as her boyfriend put it, they didn't always follow the rules. So when they were interviewed, their stories didn't match up exactly. 
And I read that as we didn't tell her the whole story about what was going on when we went to yeah, LSU. We, did, we may not have actually gone to LSU, which is that's you what I said. Both, like no, we've been there. Like, we've been there. Yeah. But there was someone else that was questioned during the investigation, our friendly neighborhood window peeper, but there was no evidence to do much with. So he was like, oh. Was it because he was still lurking around the neighborhood he yeah, lived in? Like, yeah, it was known that he was a window peeper. And she had followed a, filed a police report on him, and she gave the description, and he matched the description. So she was murdered. They brought him in, but they had nothing to hold him on. Oh, no, no, no. He's just a pervert. Yeah. Okay, whatever. Three months later, a man in Zachary came from, from work. The father of two daughters walked in the door to find a man standing in their living room. The man panicked and said, Hi, I'm looking for Monroe, which is like another town in bad, like in Louisiana, before running out of the house and making an escape on one of the daughter's bikes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just pictured it. <laughs> like Big a man on a little bike. Like, ah! yeah, that's what I thought, too. <laughs> Police were able to track him down and he was arrested at the Azalea, Azalea Rest Cemetery. But he would make bail two days later. And he would head back to a, another cemetery in the area just a couple months later. On a rainy April night, a young couple was getting hot and heavy in the backseat of a Toyota Corolla when the door of the car flew open and the boy was hit in the head with a brush axe. Oh the, my gosh. Yeah. The assailant launched a full-scale attack on the couple, the boy doing his best to shield the girl from the incoming blows. The man sees the headlights in the distance and he takes off running. Panicked, the couple locks themselves in the car, fe fearful that the man is going to come back. Because I say young couple, but like these are teenagers. It's like they're little babies. They're children. When, they're children. When a police officer sees the dome light from the car in the distance, he heads over to investigate. The couple, seeing the police officer, freak out screaming, it's him, it's him. But the police officer was able to shine his flashlight on his face so he could see, like they could see that he was a cop. The cuts on the boy's head and a large cut on the girl's leg were the most severe of their wounds. The police man called for paramedics immediately, and the couple was able to survive the attack. But the rainy conditions washed away any sign of the man. No evidence, no footprints, nothing. There were I no raid. It's always so inconvenient. There I'm glad were... that kid survived after he got hit in the head with an axe, though. I had to look up what a brush axe was. It still looks scary. It does. By the time they were able to put together like a lineup where the couple could pick out Lee in the lineup, it was the statute of limitations had passed. So they knew who did it, but they couldn't do anything about it. Six years later, three-year-old Michael Mebrewer was walking around in his yard when he, his friend noticed him outside and asked his mom, Kathy Morris, if Michael could come play. She told her son, as long as his mom said it was okay, he could come over. Michael told her that he couldn't find his mom and she wasn't at home. So she grabbed the little boy's hand and walked him over to see, like, maybe she was sleeping or something. His mom, Randy, was nowhere to be found. But when she walked in and she could see that there was blood everywhere, she knew that something was horribly wrong. She ran home and her and her husband called the police. Randy had divor divorced her husband a couple of years prior, although they happily co-parented. They were friends, even. Her ex-husband was actually supposed to pick Michael up the next day on April 19th. That Saturday started off pretty normal. She caught up on cleaning, ran errands, and watched Disney movies with Michael. 
She called his dad a little before bed, making sure that he was still coming the next day. Brandy was nowhere to be found, but there was evidence of a very large struggle. Like I said, there was blood everywhere. There was blood all over her headboard, showing evidence that her head had been smashed against it. Her contact laid in a puddle of blood on the floor. Her car was left in the driveway, no keys to be found, just like in Connie Warner's murder. There was a trail of blood through the house and outside. There was blood on a trash bag outside the door, as well as the clue that would eventually break this case wide open. Seaman was found to have been ejaculated onto the trash bag. Ew. I know. How old was her son? Three. So her son was three also? Brandy's son was three. Yeah, Brandy's son was three. He was the one that was outside. And then her, Kathy's son was just at their house and saw that he was out there. Okay, I got it exactly. Yeah, he was sleeping when all of this happened and he slept right through it. Oh, poor baby. That's Mm -hmm. awful. There was one investigator with the Zachary Police Department who knew all along who was committing these crimes. He knew the name Derek Todd Lee. He had questioned him numerous times when he was brought in for window peeping. He even told Lee that he knew what he was up to when they conducted a search of Lee's house. He told him, I know what you're doing and I'm going to stop you. Good. He didn't, he didn't think he had the evidence to convict him. But what he didn't know is tucked inside an evidence locker was the trash bag with the semen on it that had never been tested. <gasps> mm-hmm. Ugh, the 90s. The detective, David McDavid, people called him <laughs> Mac, but I was like, that's the best name I've ever heard. He was so fixated on Lee being their man that he was actually taken off the case for a year because he wouldn't pursue any other leads. He was like, nope, this is the guy. I know it's the guy I'm going to make. Like, we're going to make this happen. And they were yeah, like, and he's no. right. Yeah, he was right. He was finally brought back onto the case in 2002 when he became lieutenant. During this time in Lee's personal life, he was in quite the conundrum. His longtime girlfriend, Cassandra, ended up getting pregnant which was a problem considering he was still married. Jackie's dad had also died in an accident at the factory that he worked at, and she was awarded a pretty hefty chunk of change like via an insurance payout. And Lee took full advantage of that. He was using the money to buy fancy clothes, cars, snakeskin boots, using the money as like a lure to pick up women. On June 21st, 1999, Lee started to stalk Colette Walker. He had seen her at the store that she worked at. And when he approached her asking like rapid fire questions, was that your boyfriend that left? Is that your apartment? Can you give me a ride? She told him like, no, I'm on my way to the store. No, go away. Two days later, he followed her into her apartment. He was super creepy asking her for a beer after and after making some crude comments about what he could do to her. He actually listened when she said that he needed to leave. He left his phone number and then awkwardly went in for a hug. Colette was in shock, and she noticed him a couple days later literally hiding behind a tree. Her daughter had walked outside at night to get fingernail polish, and he was like, is that your daughter? So finally, she called the police, and police finally had evidence in the form of a boot print outside of her window that could convict this guy of some crime. But Lee would take a plea deal, still never see jail time. He was just sentenced to probation, and Colette was pissed and terrified. That would be the worst thing. You find this guy. He's stalking you. He's outside your window. You Mm -hmm. get evidence that he's doing this and still he's just free to be around your house. You have to just take his word for it that he won't come around. No. Exactly. After you've asked him to leave over and over. Ugh. Mm -hmm. She would, however, grow to realize just how lucky she was in the coming years. 
In February of 2000, Lee got into a physical altercation with Cassandra and he severely beat her. The police were called and Lee tried to escape by trying to run a police officer over with his car. He was sentenced to four years hard labor, but was out of prison the very next year. Another chance they had to keep him off the streets. Oh, and this is after they had a stolen gun that was found. So one of his cousins had a gun that was stolen and Lee pawned it. The pawn shop called because the gun had been reported stolen was like, hey, I have this gun. They had the gun in their possession. They were going to hand the gun over to the FBI for like a federal case. And they lost the gun. The pawn shop lost it? No, the police officers lost the gun. And when it finally showed up a few months later, the chain of evidence had been broken. So they couldn't even pursue charges. How does that happen? How do you... I mean, I know it like people break protocol and that's how it happens. But just the idea that like you have things that could put away bad people and it's getting ugh, infuriating. Mm-hmm. I'm annoyed. Mm-hmm. On September 24th, Gina Wilson Green hadn't showed up for work and her boss got very worried because it wasn't even like her to be late. He called her house many times. No answer. And they were friends outside of work. So as the day went on and he still hadn't heard from her, he went to her house around 1230 to check on her. When he pulled up, Gina's red BMW sat in the driveway. He couldn't find the spare key that Gina had told him about, so he walked around to the back door. That was unlocked. He walked into the house, and when he got to Gina's bedroom, he discovered her lifeless body on the bed. Greg called the police from his cell phone, and when the police got there, they began to put the pieces together of that evening. They had spoken with her sister, who told her that the night before, Gina had come over and hung out with her and her daughter before going home. An autopsy would reveal that Gina had been brutally raped and strangled. They followed her cell phone pings where they found her cell phone, credit cards, checkbooks, and a towel from her home, only blocks from where Connie Warner's body had been found. Two days after Gina's murder, Jackie filed another domestic complaint against Lee. He spent one month in prison. It's like, what's the point at that point? One month. Yeah, that's nothing. That's zero time. It's not. Especially for a repeat offender who you have probably a pretty thick file on. Mm-hmm. A judge looks at it and goes, yeah, I think a month will straighten this guy out. Yeah, a month no. will be fine. On January 14th, 2002, Geraldine Barr DeSoto was at home when she heard a knock on the door. The man at the door asked her if he could use her phone. And before she could even hand it to him, he smashed the cordless phone into her head with such force that it cracked her skull and damaged brain tissue. The 21-year-old LSU student was found by her husband, Darren, when he got back home from work. Around 6 p.m. that day, Darren realized that he hadn't heard from Gerilyn. He knew that she had an interview earlier and like that she would be busy for some of the day, but it should have been over by now. He should have heard from her. He called the house. He called her cell phone. He even pinged her on her next cell phone. Do you remember those? Like the walkie-talkie type? Yeah. When he got home or when he got no answer, he rushed home. When he walked into the room, he discovered Gerilyn's lifeless body on the floor. At first, he thought that she had taken her own life because Gerilyn had been having issues with depression in the previous months. She had been writing it about she had been writing about it pretty extensively in her journal that was later found. When Darren put his arms under his wife's body to cradle it, he realized that she hadn't shot herself. Her neck was slashed from ear to ear, resulting in almost decapitation. Darren was immediately a suspect. Um, when he walked into the house and saw her laying there, because like I said, he thought he had, she had taken her own life. He punched the wall 
So I guess he had like a really bruised hand, like when the police got there and he was covered in blood because he tried to like lift her up. He was, you know, he found his wife dead. Yeah. I wonder why. Weird. Her journal detailed fights that had turned physical between the two. Friends talked about how much of a volatile relationship they had. And he maintained his innocence the whole time. And when he went on a poker run with one of his friends, he met an FBI agent on it and asked, like, can you please help us? I don't like how the sheriff's office is handling this. The FBI sent the sheriff's office a letter detailing the conversation that they had with Darren. So it made him look even worse. And he would remain a suspect in the case for almost two years. May 23rd, 2002, Christina Moore was working on her graduate degree. She was her parents' pride and joy, a wonderful student and daughter. She literally had her whole life mapped out. She went for a run and she disappeared. Her body was found near a ravine a month later. Her cause of death was listed as a skull fracture. But due to exposure to the elements, there wasn't much else that could be determined. Not even a week after Christina Moore went missing, on May 31st, Charlotte Murray Pace was at home when she heard a knock on the door. Once again, the man at the door asked her to use the phone. Charlotte had recently graduated and moved into a new townhouse with her best friend, Rebecca. She was 24. Again, she had her whole life ahead of her. Just like with Geraldine DeSoto, the man attacked her as she handed him the phone. What the man didn't expect is for Charlotte to fight as hard as she did. The rage became apparent when her attacker brutally attacked her with a flathead screwdriver, stabbing her almost 100 times before violently raping her. When her roommate discovered Charlotte's body, she was left traumatized to the point the scene was so horrific that she literally had to move out of Baton Rouge because of it. So just a couple months later, and he's picking up brutality, and he's picking, like, the frequency is increasing. July 9th, 2002, 46-year-old nurse Diane Alexander was home getting ready for work. Her husband was a delivery truck driver. He was away on a run. Again, there was a knock on the door. Man outside told her that he was lost and he needed directions. He asked if he could use her phone. He asked her if her husband was home, and she's like, no, he's not home. She said that when she said that, he instantly did a 180. He forced his way into their home, grabbing her by the throat and threatening her with a knife. He attempted to rape her, but was unable to sexually perform. Out of frustration and rage, he took a telephone cord and proceeded to beat and strangle her with it. Diane Alexander was fighting, and as she was fighting, her son came home and Lee fled. She was rushed to the hospital where she survived. She was so badly beaten and um, traumatized, she wasn't able to give police officers a description. But a DNA profile was able to be pulled because semen was found on her dress. July 12, 2002. Pamela Piglia Kinnamore got home around 9.30 from working at her antique shop. She had talked to her husband of 20 years earlier in that evening. He wasn't going to be home until later. When she got home, she accidentally left her keys in the back door, a habit she was known to be bad about. She started to undress to get into the shower when she heard footsteps coming down the hall. She knew it wasn't her son because her son was at church camp and her husband wasn't supposed to be home until later on. She was taken at knife point out of her house to a white work truck. Two separate people saw Pam in this truck naked that night. And two separate people called it into the police. Good for them. Her husband, Byron, as soon as he got home, realized that she wasn't there. He realized the struggle had taken place. He called the police. Her face was all over the news. 
but her body would be discovered four days later near a swampy area. Her throat had been slit multiple times, again, almost to decapitation, and she had also been sexually assaulted. It was determined from the autopsy that she was still alive when her throat was cut because there was blood in her lungs. Ugh, gross and awful. The one of a lady saw her in the truck first and Pam, like, I guess was knocked out and then she woke up and like she, the lady saw her like looking frantic, wrote the uh, license plate number down. And when she saw Pam's face on the news, she called the police and one was the other one was a semi truck driver and he could see into like see her in the car naked and he radioed it in and like no one ever came to talk to him about it ever ever like ever ever well i think i don't know like afterwards but on the night of the attack no trinisha danae Cullum was mourning the loss of her mother who had passed away from cancer just a few months prior she was really struggling with the loss and she had even attempted to take her attempted to take her own life due to the grief she was experiencing she had recently started talking to a social worker and the 23 year old was just trying to get through life after her terrible loss She was sitting at the cemetery on November 21st, 2002, visiting her mother's grave when Lee abducted her. Her family was also concerned she had taken her own life when she was discovered to be missing, but her body would be found and abandoned almost 20 miles away from where she was taken. A DNA sample was left behind. Police were looking for a white man. The FBI profiler said white man. And it didn't matter that all of these people who were screaming, it's Derek Todd Lee, who was an African-American. Even after a woman who saw Lee with Column was put under hypnosis to produce a sketch of the man that she saw, they still depicted him as a white man, which is like insane to me. When Detective Stutes from the Baton Rouge Police Department called the state police to say that they thought that these cases were related, he was told that because Column didn't fit, fit the victim profile because she was African-American, that the cases weren't related. <sighs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Carrie Lynn Yoder was home on March 3rd, 2003. She recently had a great weekend in New Orleans with her boyfriend for Mardi Gras. She was brilliant. She had an IQ of 135. She was working on her PhD. She was beautiful, vibrant, full of life. She had been skydiving 61 times in her 26 Whoa. I was like, she was only 26 and she's... Mm -hmm. It's quite so obviously, it's very impressive. Her boyfriend couldn't get a hold of her, so he went to her house to check in. He climbed it through a window because the doors were locked, but there was no sign of Carrie. No blood was discovered in the home. She was just gone. Her purse and everything was right there where she left it. Ten days later, her body was discovered under Whiskey Bay Bridge. She had been raped, savagely beaten. She was punched so hard that she had ribs completely broken away from her spinal column. She had also been strangled. A week before Carrie's murder, 20 DNA samples had been sent off to get a racial profile of the suspect. The results concluded that they were looking for an African-American man. Old cases were opened again. The case of Colette Walker reemerged. Danny Mixon, one of the original investigators, started case by case putting all these pieces together. He was mapping when the murders took place, where Lee was at the time, because he was also convinced that Derek Todd Lee was the guy. He put together enough evidence to ask for a motion for a DNA swap from Lee. And on May 5th, 2003, he was given it. He realized that the murders coincided with job losses. So like Lee would get fired from a job and then a murder would take place. He went to Lee's house and he presented him with the motion. His kids, Lee's kids, because he had two at the time and then also one from his girlfriend. Um, his kids were like playing in the yard and he 
Lee was like, you can swap me right here. And like Detective Mixon was like, maybe we should go inside. He's like, no, it's fine. You can do it right here. And that he was so creepy calm that he was like, this is a little weird. Yeah. They were able to bring in Diane Alexander from before. He picked him out of a lineup. The couple from the cemetery, this is when they were picking him out of a lineup. And on May 25th, investigators would get the answer that they had been looking for for years. The DNA was a match. What they didn't know, though, is when he gave the sample, as soon as he gave it, he fled. Obvi- like, yeah, like, he was. that's why he was so calm. He was like, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to get the hell out of here. But as soon as his face was released to the public, Connie Lynn Warner's daughter's boyfriend, the one who had confronted him initially before they went to LSU for that weekend, said that he recognized immediately who Derek Todd Lee was because it was the same guy that he was like, what the hell are you doing here? Like, what are you doing out here? Uh, Lee had sent his wife and kids to Detroit, took them on a bus up to Detroit, and then he took a bus to Atlanta. When his wife saw his face all over the news, she called the Detroit FBI and told them that they could find him in in Atlanta, that he had gotten a construction job there. They asked, like, why he had fled, and she said that he told her that they were going to try and pin some stuff on him so that they all needed to get out of there. They're going to try to pin some stuff. Mm -hmm. What kind of stuff? And then she saw the news, and she's like, oh, okay, yeah, no. They were able to track him down to a hotel in Atlanta, but he wasn't there when they got there. The The guests that were there and that knew him said that he was like warm and kind he talked to a lot of people they didn't get any creepy vibes from him investigators set up a perimeter and not long after who do they see lee talking to another woman he was arrested without incident and brought back to louisiana hey guys connie here if you've been a longtime listener you know that i had to go gluten-free last year and your girl struggled I'm a sweets girl, and one of my favorite snacks at night was a huge bowl of cereal. Up until now, I hadn't been able to find one that didn't taste like cardboard or air. Enter Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon has the amazing flavors you love, but without all the bad stuff. In my case, gluten. Magic Spoon has been a literal life changer for not only me, but my picky chicken tenders and fries only kids. Magic Spoon comes in a variety pack with four flavors. Cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. This pack has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs. That protein serving has been clutch for my kids in the morning, and I don't feel so guilty about snacking at night. With only 140 calories a serving, it's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. It tastes like all of the cereal you loved from your childhood, only it's actually nutritious, so you can eat like a whole bowl without the added guilt. Go to magicspoon.com slash gruesome to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code gruesome at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash gruesome and use the code gruesome at checkout to save $5 off. He pled not guilty to all of the charges and his legal team tried to argue that their client wasn't mentally competent to stand trial. The claim was thrown out, and he stood trial for each of the six murders separately. 
August 6, 2004 was the murder was for the murder, the trial for the murder of Geraldine DeSoto. The trial lasted just five days and revolved around DNA evidence linking Lee to the crime. On August 10th, the jury took less than two hours to secure a conviction. For her murder, Lee received life in prison. One month later, he was back in court facing first-degree murder charges for the killing of Charlotte Pace. This time, the death penalty was on the table. And in addition to DNA, prosecutors brought in Diane Alexander. She was able to show his mental capacity was competent enough to commit his crimes. She was able to go into detail about what he did to her. The prosecution case was so solid that the defense didn't call any witnesses to the stand. On October 12th, he was found guilty of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to death by lethal injection. However, the sentence would never be carried out because he died at a hospital after being transferred to Louisiana State Penitentiary on January 21st, 2016. He died from a heart disease. So he was on, like, for 12 years, he was on death row, just sitting there. So he got, did he get life in the rest of those as well? So he was linked to him, but I think after, because I didn't read anything about the rest of the trial. So I think once he was convicted of, like, sentenced to death, then that was, like, that was it. Can you not be tried if you're sentenced to death? Do you think? I'm not sure, but I would assume that, I mean, I don't know how to say this without sounding, like, kind of like a dick. But it's, like, that's a lot of money and resources. Yeah, I would think. Yeah. Let me see. I'm Googling it, too. Can you go to trial if you're on death row? I can't find a straight answer. I think it's different each in each state. Yeah. I just know that there weren't any cases. That, like, there weren't any court cases after that. Oh, okay. But hmm. there's also, like, he was never tied to Connie Lee Warner. Like, he was never tried or DNA didn't link him to Connie Lee Warner. So he's DNA linked to seven murders, but he's suspected of up to 17. Oh, my gosh. I doubt it, especially with how quickly, like, they increased and how, like, what was he doing outside of just stalking women? Did he, because it seems like he worked and he had, like, family, but, like, with what time? Yeah, he, like, would work and he had, like, he was, like, a pipe fitter. He did construction. Like, he did a lot of jobs. And, I mean, he was, his kids had no idea that he did anything like this because they said that he was, like, pretty hands-on with present. it yeah it's it's just always scary and crazy to me when people and i mean we see it with serial killers all the time but they just like have that normal life outside of committing these horrific acts his uh one of his sons got arrested for i think it's like negligent homicide because he had shot another kid when he was like 19 well, I mean, no, not cool, but I don't know. I don't know. I hope all of his kids got the support that they needed after, you know, they find out their dad's a serial killer. Yeah. I would imagine that not a lot of kids get the support that they need after that happens. No. And unfortunately, we live in a time where the families are villainized as well mm-hmm. for just simply being involved with the person committing the crimes. Yeah. Or even just unwilling to, like, completely disown someone. I understand. I get that you would want to. I think it was BTK who his kids, like, Raider, who's his kids were like, he was turned him in. But they were like, he was the best dad. Yeah. Like, he was the best dad. 
Wait, was it his daughter that turned him in? Isn't it? Or she wrote the book, right? Uh, that I'm not sure. Of. She uh, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Speaking of books, though, um, there's a book named Bloodbath by Sue Israel, Susan, I think it's Mustafa, and Tony Clayton. And I 100% recommending the book. It goes into incredible detail about every single one of the victims and his personal life in general and like the murder the victims who are assumed to be victims of lee that she has a lot in there i just 10 out of 10 recommend it It was a really good easy read it was a quick read because it was so beautifully written it's awesome but yeah we um we should make like a like a book list like a page for all the books we recommend i'm gonna do that i'm gonna make that a thing this was a good one you said bloodbath by um israel was that what it was uh sue israel the main writer is susan mustafa and co-written with so sue israel and tony clayton nice cool it, it's it's good Ugh. well it's there were a while to get to the other baton rouge killer the other other baton rouge killer Oof. During 19, I think it's like 1990 through 2001, there were like 50 unsolved homicides in the Baton Rouge area. Did they ever catch, you said there were, there were definitely three. Did they ever catch the other one? Do you know what the other one's name was? Let me see. Yes. Jeffrey Lee Gilroy. Gillis Gilroy. Okay, I was yeah. like, wait, that's not the one we covered. Now there's just so many of them that sometimes the names like blur together. Well, even uh, they had John Allen Muhammad is from Bad Rouge too, the DC sniper. Okay, one more ad to tell you how much we love Zencaster. If you're listening to this and you're thinking that you could start a podcast, you should. Zencaster makes starting a podcast so easy. With their high quality recording in both audio and video, Zencaster is the perfect platform to start your podcast journey. We've said it before, there is only one you and your voice is important. Use it to start a podcast today. We'd love to help you. Head over to Zencaster.com slash pricing and enter code gruesome for 30% off your first three months. And then tell us what you're creating. <sighs> Yeesh. I would like to throw out the idea that Louisiana is the craziest state in the country. The craziest behind that. Like, I think because there are, I mean, even if you think we talk about like California and the Pacific Northwest and like the 80s, there was like a ton of serial killers. But mm -hmm. like Louisiana's, we always have a ton from there. They're always just batshit, like absolutely balls to the wall. Like, how and could before, this possibly happen? Before anyone comes at me, there is no greater Louisiana stand than myself. So I'm not saying that out of a place of hate. I'm saying that out of a place of love because I, I think people in love Indiana Indiana. would agree. I think they would be like, yep, you're right. It's crazy. You got, some here. You, you got to be a special kind of person to. <laughs> I mean, it gets 7,000 degrees. Like it's 7,000 degrees with 400. I would also murder someone if it was, <laughs> if it was that hot outside. I'm I remember my first, uh, my first summer there. Like I went to visit my sister and I was like, I have, and I lived in South Carolina at the time. And I was like, I have never in my life experienced a heat like this. Like it was just, you walk outside and it's just like, <gasps> I'm dead. Can't breathe. Oof. 
And he, they said that like he would, the area where he lived growing up, it was always to like him and his cousins and everything. It was like, stay away from white girls. You can't talk to them, which furthered this like infatuation that he had with them. And he was just obsessed with light skinned girls with dark hair and very pronounced cheekbones. That was what he said. And he would stalk them and he it was like a conquest for him. And I think that's disgusting. And it's it's like forbidden. It's like you can't do this. So it's all you wanted. That's all he wanted to do. Ugh. Gross. Well, that guy's a bummer. I'm glad he died. I'm sorry. It took 12 years. Yeah, I wish it wasn't from heart disease. And I was I wish it was like an actual execution. I don't. I wish it was the victim's families. That's like what I don't get. Like, and I know this is. I know I shouldn't say this, but I just don't understand why if the state, which, okay, I'm going to say this and I'm going to have a shitty review. I know that they're going to be like, she doesn't even understand how the death penalty works. But I just think that if you're already paying the money for the state to execute the person, the family should be the one to do it. Oh, it's, it's like, I'll buy a shoddy and save you $5,000. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I get. I get why you can't. I'm just saying they should be able to. <laughs> there should be options on the table. Check this box if. I don't know. But, I am. I am notoriously weird about the death penalty because it just costs so much to do it. Anyways, it costs more to complete a death penalty than it does to like hold someone for thirty plus years. But like, you're right. People like that. Yes, it does. Huh. I guess that is because. There's a bunch of other fees that come into it. Like they do have to like fly the family in for that kind of stuff. They have to hold them. They get certain things. It costs more to do that. But, (laughs) you know, taxpayer money aside for prisons, I just, I wish, I wish it was easier. I wish there was a better way or it was more. Yeah, I guess. I wish it was more black and white, cut and dry. You know, this is you eye for an eye. But at the end of the day, like. There is a lot of ethical Knowing that goes into it. That Brandy was murdered with her three-year-old son at the house. Yeah. And he was just left like to his own devices. And if he's a window creeper, didn't he? He probably knew that, right? He probably knew that she had a little kid who was mm-hmm. asleep in the house. What was he going to do if the kid woke up? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I hate cases like this because... You see the Swiss cheese effect where it's through no fault of the prosecutors. Like, it's not like it's they're purposely letting this guy go, but it's like the Swiss cheese model. Like, things just happen and creeps like this just slip through the holes and then shit like this happens. Yeah, his uh, level of escalation. I mean, and for it to be happening for like over a decade. You said, when did that, I was thinking about this too, when did the car thing happen where he hit the kid, the teenagers in the car and then versus the lineup, how much, how many more, was that like seven years? Yeah. Because you said it was outside of the statute of limitations. It was years because it wasn't murder. So there wasn't, I mean, there is a statute of limitations with it. And it was literally years before they were able to pick this guy out of a lineup. That's... I, awful. It's awful that they said, oh, you can pick him out of the lineup, but he doesn't count for you guys. It's, I think at that point they were trying to solidify the cases against, like, get him locked away for good. Yeah. I just feel like they deserved a trial as well. They were, like, attacked with an axe. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if someone attacked me with an axe, I would want some justice. <laughs> I think the same thing every time I hear like a rape, a rape thing is like a rape case can't go to trial because it's outside the statute of limitations. And I'm like, there's no statute of limitations on the trauma that comes from this. And yeah, like, come on, come on. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine parking and something like we talked about this when you did the Texarkana Phantom Slayer, like the parked so many times. like, (laughs) And that thought I was thought like I would be caught by my parents or like the police. But like I never was like a serial killer is going to be out here. I know whoever um, the horror story where the the hook on the outside of the door, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. They really... um, that really is a thing. I feel like these are these stories are so much scarier. You could just tell a true story. Just let them listen to like one of those podcast episodes. That's <laughs> like you, you want to hear a scary story. We went to Boy Scouts, right? We went to Boy Scouts and they were talking about like spooky stories. And I was like, I have a few. And my husband was like, No, <laughs> no, no, no. You don't get to you don't get to tell your scary stories to the children. <laughs> Boy Scouts. Let's a- let them choose to listen on their own. Their moms have probably already heard it. <laughs> well, we were talking about, uh, I was, I went camping and uh, one of my really good friends that goes out there, she listens to the podcast and whenever she hears a case, like she like, she's like, we need to discuss this. So we were talking about it and I can see as her and I are like in depth with like the details of what's going on in these cases, the people around us who are are also like they are looking at us like what and they're the slowly backing away like don't talk to them Look. yeah because i'm like oh man if you think that's bad you should hear about this like can you have you ever heard about this case or like this is insane she's a sculptor so she'll like listen while she's doing her art and i think that's the coolest shit it is cool it's cool that we get to hang out with people while they do their like jobs and hobbies yeah because like it's our, our job and hobby too <laughs> yeah i i do like that when people are or people who like have their headphones on and they're like i'm listening to true crime at the gym instead of music (laughs) there's nothing else to get me if i have to get pumped up to run you know that's what i want to listen to like how fast could i would i be able to run if this happened in this moment there's only it imo there's the there's only been one case that i have listened to and i listened to uh case file a lot and you guys know how his voice is and he can creep me out sometimes like if I'm driving home and it's at night like that the case file voice in general I can be like I can't not today but um, I was listening to another podcast this was years ago and I was driving from Indiana to Ohio and it was late at night and it was um, talking about Myra Henley and Ian Brady and I don't know what it was about that case but I got the heaps like, that was, like, one of the only times where I was, like, I think it was just because it's so dark. You know, 35 is so dark. Like, you take it and it's there's, like, nothing. Yeah. And I was, like, I have to turn this off. <laughs> like, I, I'm getting scared driving home right now. Well, I mean, kind of lines up with that story, being in, like, the middle of nowhere and dark and, yes. Mm. I get it. Terrifying. I was scared. That was the one. I can't all- listen to true crime or like any scary stories at night or when I'm driving alone in my car. I can't do either of those things because I am like, I have had to stop and like pull over and look in my back seat and be like, okay, no one's there, but you convince yourself there is yeah. someone. It's like, yeah. it's like, um, 
like how earlier when you were like, I felt someone coming up behind me. It's like, I feel someone in the backseat right now. They're there. They're listening uh-huh. to this. They're going to strike it just the right moment. Gotcha. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. It's just your brain. I am my screwdriver. So come at me, bro. I, uh, we, we went to Goodwill over the weekend and I packed two screwdrivers in my purse and when I packed them in there (laughs) I was thinking of you but I packed them just in case I found a table I liked and I would have to like take it apart and bring it (laughs) I was like in the event that I have to like take a piece of furniture apart I better put some screwdrivers in my purse so no I always have it because like I mean I know I wish I could have I should have asked to see it when when you're driving me around (laughs) it's like this the handle it's like a heavy duty like heavy duty one it's and i actually phillips or flathead it's a flathead one and it's (laughs) the screwdriver it's like for it's for like car like working on cars the screwdriver Mm -hmm. part of it's probably like 10 inches long and it's like it can do some damage and i have it always because in my opinion the only time i'm ever at risk when i'm like getting in my car is when i'm getting my daughter in her car seat so i have Mm -hmm. it in the pack like right there if someone comes at me, I can just into the neck. Jabby, right in their eyeball. And if you're uh, like, I was just trying to take your cart back, I would say, bro, don't run up on me. Like, <laughs> let me get you, you some can't. help. Don't get you some medical. Strangers with their back turned. I was talking to my dad and my brother. We were talking about knife fights because that's just like a normal dinner conversation for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, they were, I wasn't aware of this, but they were like, if you're in a knife fight, you run. And if you're in a gunfight, you charge. Because I was like, oh, is that what you do? So if they ever pull a knife on you, run. And if they ever pull a gun on you, charge. Mm -hmm. Even though Hollywood would lead you to believe differently. That is. Yeah. They were explaining all the YouTube videos, which I don't know why they're watching YouTube videos of like knife fights. But they do that. Like you just have to be prepared. He said that you could see the guy with the knife like clear like 50 feet towards someone in like 30 seconds or less, probably less, and like just stab them in just the right spot. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, noted. Mental note, if someone has a knife, run. Yeah, but if they have a gun, they're, I mean, they're less they're trying to aim, yeah. Or if you're going to run, you run in like a diagonal zigzag. Yeah, a zigzag pattern. pattern. I just, like I said, they were talking about it. I hadn't heard it. And this happened because I remember why we were talking about it. He had brought a knife to the airport. (laughs) He was flying home and he, my dad is very into weapons, like building and collecting and like, it's just his thing. And so he had this knife and he's always like very proud of how sharp his like pocket knives are. He's like, look how sharp. So this one was very sharp. So he gave it to a TSA guy. He was like, hey, man, you want this? And like made my brother said he made a show of it, (laughs) but like was like, you can have it. Careful. It's very sharp. And he said he um, gave one to a guy at work who thought like and immediately within like an hour of him giving it to him he had cut his hand and was going to the hospital to get stitches because he was like hey it's really sharp don't play with it and he was like playing with it and he cut himself so i love your dad and a sharp so knife i guess i got i got the guy for you does he sharpen <laughs> kitchen knives because like my shit's always getting dull honestly i need to get my i was just thinking about that because i have a new knife set that i got last christmas 
and I was trying to cut a tomato last night. I was like, this is not sharp. I need to get my knife sharpened. And I have one of the like stick things, the mm-hmm. shrink, 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 but I just can never make it. I'm not good. At I it. got this. Th- I don't believe in full knife sets. I think the quality okay. decreases when they're produced in mass. It's a full <laughs> brain thing that I have. So I like to buy individual knives. No, that's fair. And I bought this one from Amazon last year that I kept seeing all over Reddit. Like they were like, this is the best knife. This is the best one. I was like, all right, sick. Let me try it. And it starts with a V. I can't, I keep thinking Victrola, but I know that that is not the right word. That's like the music. It is. (laughs) (laughs) But it is such a solid knife and it, the sharpness lasted forever. I got one of the knife sharpeners from Amazon. I'm like a walking Amazon ad that you suction to your counter and it sharpens like this. So it's not the stick. It's got like little. Oh, it like goes through the fires. things. Yeah. And that helps a lot. I'll have to, uh, I'll have to, they're, um, I wanted this set because they're the rainbow kind. They're like the oil spill. So like when you, oh, I know what metal. Yeah. I know what chance you have. They match. Yeah. They're really cute. And I was like, but if I sharpen them, are they still going to be like cute? Cause I like that. I like the cute factor. It's a big part of why I buy pretty much everything. But what if it's not effective anymore? Then you still have to, I mean, you're going to keep yeah, the cute I ones? Know. Maybe, yes, I would keep the cute ones just to be like, look, shiny. I'll just only cut cake with this. Um, <laughs> this is my cake knife. <laughs> These are my... I just <laughs> forever aspire to have hibachi style sharpness knives. Right? Just like, shwink, 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 shwink. And that's how those like paper thin. Yeah. Cut through a penny. Cut through this a can, whatever else is on the infomercial. Watch out, watch out. <laughs> I want to be able to throw it in the air and just like, shrink, cut the apple in half. Mm-hmm. I have to add all of these things. Don't do these. Don't. You have to have sharp <laughs> knives because like, what if someone comes into your house? You're going to need it. I know. Like, you don't want to stab them with something and it's like a rainbow colored cake knife honestly yes i do because if in fact i have to protect myself i would like it to be cute as well like i would like them to come in and find an intruder dead on the ground but like wow that knife is where did you get that can you send me the link i'd be like absolutely yeah no problem (laughs) no (laughs) we have definitely different ideas of safety (laughs) uh you're the peak gun girl, aren't you? <laughs> no, so no, I don't have a pink gun. Would I take one? Absolutely, yes. Adorable. <laughs> I will pay the pink tax, and it's for people like me that the pink tax is invented. But uh, there's a girl I go to school with, and she listens, so she'll be very excited that I'm talking about her right now. And she always shows she has um, her pink pepper spray on her thing, and she's like, it's got a UV, it's got UV in it. So if you hit them, they can't wipe it off. It'll still be on their face. I'm like, cool. That's, that's awesome. the shit right there. Yeah, that's the biz. So, um, but she also has like one of the, it looks like a cat, but you put your fingers through its eyes and it's like a punchy stabby guy. Have you seen those? Yes. And it's a pink one. And I picked it up and I grabbed it and like put my fingers through it and was like acting tough. Like, here I, I didn't I thought that was just a cat I didn't know like a keychain I didn't know that's what it was for and I was like no yeah, those are dope those are protection dope. though I don't know like how well I would be able to punch someone <laughs> like 
you when you keep your keys between your fingers or you have your thing i'm like am i gonna be able to i never know where my keys are so <laughs> like i just know that they are somewhere in my purse or my car because it starts you have the button the button start yeah, yeah that's that is also i had lost my car key for ever because it was i just knew it was somewhere in the vicinity because the car would start but i was like well you should probably narrow that down. And when you get out and you walk away, it locks automatically. Exactly. And then it opens automatically. They really I'm like this is for us. I'm like, this is somewhere. It's somewhere. <laughs> it's not when the battery died, I had to finally find it. Like yeah. my car wouldn't start. And you have to, if your car won't start and you have one you have of to those, put the touch battery. it. Yeah. Yeah. You like touch it to the button and it'll start it. And I Googled that to find it out. I had to watch a YouTube video about it. But now I'm like, okay, I have to know where they are just in case this happens again. Well, on that note. <laughs> it's like, that's all I got. That's all I got, too. <laughs> have a good day. We have a we'll see you guys next day. week. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Gruesome Horrific True Crime, a Zencaster-powered podcast. Seriously, we wouldn't be here without them. Zencaster is simple to use and makes it easy to edit your own podcast. Zencaster gives you automatic, high-quality post-production sound, transcription, and HD video recordings of all of your episodes. If you want to start a podcast, and we think you should, click the link in the show notes or at our website and use the code GRUESOME with a capital G for 30% off your first three months. We love you, beautiful strangers. And if you love us too, here are some ways that you can support Gruesome. Please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or a five-star rating on Spotify. This helps other true crime connoisseurs find us. Follow us at Gruesome Podcast on Instagram or TikTok and talk to us on our posts. Join the Patreon. Sign up to join our True Crime Sticker of the Month Club and gain access to bonus episodes and exclusive Patreon perks. Or if a one-time donation is more your thing, we have a Venmo at Gruesome Podcast and a PayPal via our email, gruesomepodcast at gmail.com. Speaking of which, we love hearing from you. It seriously makes our whole life. So send us your questions, comments, suggestions, or just ask our opinion on whether that person you met on Tinder is a serial killer or not. Tune in next week and don't forget, lock your windows, lock your doors, and on Wednesdays, we're, we're gruesome. gruesome. Bye. Bye.